When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 91 Donkey Lane is a magical apartment complex that contains immense power, but lacks intelligent inhabitants. What is happening? I'm getting texts. Why are we getting a lot of texts? People found out what we did. Oh, dividing Mike Myers into an infinite amount of tiny Mike Myers. Listen to 91 Donkey Lane for free on Spotify or your favorite podcasting app. More at 91donkeylane.com. See you there, you donkeys. 91 Donkey Lane is a magical apartment complex that contains immense power, but lacks intelligent inhabitants. What is happening? I'm getting texts. Why are we getting a lot of texts? People found out what we did. Oh, dividing Mike Myers into an infinite amount of tiny Mike Myers. Listen to 91 Donkey Lane for free on Spotify or your favorite podcasting app. More at 91donkeylane.com. See you there, you donkeys. Hey, Horror Movie Night. Welcome to another bonus episode of the podcast. I'm sitting down to talk to my friend, Helen Milan, and her new book, Nick Nevitt and the Bloody Queen. It's an awesome comic book that she had a part in. I've actually known Helen for years, but this is the first time we've actually talked to each other, not like on the Geekscape forums or through Facebook Messenger. So this is very exciting for me. Helen, it's so nice to meet you. Hey, yeah, you too. Thank you for having me on. And uh, how nice to be talking about comics when we've spent so many years talking about comics in time. Yeah. yeah. Basically comics, movies, music. We we yeah. uh, we became friends by just being in a lot of the same forum subgroups on Geekscape back when it was basically just a forum and a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Back in those, those halcyon days. <laughs> so how did you get involved with this specific comic book because i'm looking at the cover and there's quite a few names up on that top there's five mm-hmm. names listed yeah so the names are listed it's me the um artist dom uh matthew Dal smith is another artist he did uh, a lot of the pencil work um and lee luffridge and jock uh, lee luffridge did the colors and jock did the cover um another member of the team that's not listed is um uh, Robin Jones, who was our letterer on the project. Um, so I got involved with it. Well, I mean, I started it, I guess. Um, uh, I uh, came up with an idea um, many years ago now for a, a TV show, like a kids TV show, um, that uh, that I wanted to kind of evoke those really scary 70s kids shows that they don't make anymore. Um, that's, you know, a little bit kind of dangerous, maybe even a little bit kind of, got that kind of undercurrent of like burgeoning teen sexuality and all that sort of stuff um, that you just don't see very much on telly anymore. Um, and I was talking about it to Dom, who um, I've known for some years, and he got really excited. He said that, you know, he's wanted to draw something like that for a very long time. So if I wrote it as a comic instead of as a TV show, then he would be up for drawing it. Um, and that seemed like an amazing opportunity, too good to pass up. So I went away. And um, and I wrote it over a summer in Alaska. 
and uh, yeah, gave it to him and he liked it and we went from there. Now, do you have intentions for their, I don't want to spoil uh, the actual comic. I want people to go and pick it up and read it, but it has one of those endings where it is a very satisfying ending, but it could also lead to more. Do you have other stories to continue under this or is this kind of a, a one and done graphic novel for you? Well, I mean, this, because it's kind of my, my comic book debut, I don't know like how it's going to go yet, but if it all went really well and everything, then I do have concepts for some, uh, uh, for some sequels, some of which have been built in already into the narrative. So, um, and in the kind of ephemera of the, of the world. So, um, there's detail in some of the pictures and there's information in some of the conversations. Um, that if I were to make one of the sequels I have in mind, which goes back in time and visits Nissi's mother when she is her age, um, then a lot of the groundwork would already be set for uh, for that story. And who were some who were some of the influences on this? Because I definitely got a, a strong like Clive Barker vibe when I was reading it. Uh -huh, yeah, okay. Um, I'd say um, a lot of British, um, like, young adult authors from, like, the 70s, like um, uh, like Alan Garner. Like, Alan Garner I was completely obsessed with when I was younger. He's very little um, known outside of the UK, but I would urge anyone who likes folk horror or fantasy to seek him out. He does these amazing kind of stories that are um, set in... Like real geographical locations in the UK with like real myths and legends. So it was a big inspiration to this. Um, and then there was a lot of movies like Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw, stuff like that. And then kind of more deep cuts like I Start Counting. Um, so it's all kind of very much this kind of 70s melee that I particularly love that I was trying to channel, but also to kind of modernize rather than, than just ape what others have done. Would you would you say that the seventies was kind of like your favorite time for for film and and literature, or just kind of that was the tone you wanted to capture for this specific project? I mean, it's definitely a time that I love. Like there was so many amazing things going on, from like Gialli in Italy and Pinky Violence in Japan, and then folk horror um, in the UK, Southern Gothic kind of stuff in America. I mean, there's there's just so much going on in the seventies. But I mean, when you really dig into it, I think I feel like that about a lot of decades, you know, the 50s, the 60s, it, you know, 80s, 90s. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's just that I was trying to channel this particular time, but I could, uh, like other projects that I'm working on now, kind of do a similar thing, but with different eras. So, What would you say uh, for, for, let me try think how I want to word this how how did you what was your introduction to comic books what was your do you remember what your first like big comic book was that got you hooked yeah what well, kind of like I have always had comics bubbling away in the background because in the UK and um, we have these things called annuals and like so a lot of um, TV shows will have these hardback annuals that will come out once a year and they'll be full of like um descriptive stories and stuff but also like comic strips and so we have the dandy and the beano and also she-ra here there was a she-ra annual you could read kind of a she-ra comic once a year so though i was always aware of those i always really really loved them but then i also remember when i got old enough to walk home on my own from church on a sunday um we had a, a news agent that would just stock like random comic books like 
just there seemed to be no rhyme or reason like no kind of order to it they just had some comic books that would just change periodically and I remember picking up um I think maybe it was Amethyst um which was very kind of in tune with uh, things I liked when I was really young like She-Ra type uh, type things and I remember that thinking that was to really really awesome and also Pirates of the Black Water so nothing uh nothing very kind of highbrow or anything but I remember um reading those and just being kind of enchanted um by the the way that uh, the words and the stories kind of played together I have kind of a similar thing growing up was that there I lived directly behind the local deli that we would go to to get like our meats for the week and you know like mm. a gallon of milk and stuff like that and they also they just had like a rack of comics but there was never a rhyme or reason to like <laughs> to the you know and maybe have like one random spider-man comic and a random x-men comic like whatever like the big comics were in that time period of the early to mid 90s yeah like right. i would every saturday i would watch like x-men on fox kids morning and then me and my neighbor would go up to the deli and just you know, buy like $10 worth of comics and sit out on the front <laughs> stoop reading them. Um, but like there, it was so hard to follow stories because again, there was no rhyme or reason to it. So you'd have like an end on a cliffhanger and then like you wouldn't see another Spider-Man comic <laughs> in there for like two or three weeks. And then it would be like a completely different story. <laughs> yeah. And I always remember the little asterisks going to these editor's notes and they'd be like, see issue, whatever. And it's like, oh, okay. I have no idea how to... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to access this in any way. I don't those, think those I asterisks, it. those asterisks are what made me stop reading like Marvel comics. Eventually, it was like to read yeah, any right. story, you had to read like nine other stories. Yeah, exactly. And it's like I don't understand. I don't understand any of this. I think it took me a really long time actually to. I was really slow on the uptake of even kind of how it all worked. Anyway, that there would be these kind of issues that you could follow. I think for, a, for quite a few years when I was really young, I just kind of thought that the whole thing was quite random. I didn't, I didn't clock that, uh, that you could really follow things until much later. Yeah. No, I think that this, it, it was a long time for me to piece together like, oh, it's a continuous story. Like yeah, exactly. in my brain, in my brain, it was like reading a Goosebumps book. Like it was like you read the book and then the story's over and then the next Goosebump book is a whole new story. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so speaking about the horror aspect of this, I know that you and I have always had a mutual love of horror. Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite horror films that have been brought into the, not even just necessarily the crafting of the book, but just for you that shaped you? Ooh, the horror films that shaped me. Okay, so I would say um, the, Hammer, uh, the Hammer horror film, big time. Uh, so like the old Christopher Lee, Vincent Price movies, because they used to be on TV, um, when uh, when I was a kid, so I remember seeing those and um, Mask of the Red Death as well, um, and all those kind of really opulent kind of British horror movies. Um, I used to watch um, secretly. I wasn't really allowed to, um, and uh, I found them, you know, terrifying but also kind of fascinating and enchanting. Um, and then also, I had some very formative experiences with horror films. Um, where one was that my cousin showed me um, Child's Play uh, when I was much too young to watch Child's Play. <laughs> and it just fried my, I think I was seven or something, it fried my seven-year-old brain. And um, I had this favourite teddy called Grey Teddy. 
and I would take him with me everywhere. He was like my best mate. And um, I had a nightmare that he had attacked me after I watched Charles play. And then I became so frightened of him that I had to sleep with him under my head. Um, and I slept with him under my head for like five years or something. I uh, didn't tell anyone that I was scared of him because I didn't want to like, you know, risk the, <laughs> the kind of teddy bear rage. Um, so yeah, Charles Day was a really big one that shaped me. And it kind of gave me this, um, uh, this fascinating fascination with kind of childhood fear that has never quite gone away, which is something that I think um, maybe comes out in Nick Nevin, like the kind of uh, the the ways the world is is scary or threatening when you're when you're young is quite um, is quite fascinating to me. Um, yeah, I and I I agree with that. One of the things that you hear a lot, uh, especially when you're in my field of like going to horror conventions and meeting people is the like, well, you know, it doesn't scare me, so it's not really horror. But I feel like horror is not really designed to scare people in their 30s and 40s. It's definitely (laughs) that thing that, like, the teenager's supposed to secretly be watching, not, like, they're not allowed to be watching it, but they're, like, sneaking out of bed and watching it. And, Mm -hmm. like, it's tapping into this fear that they didn't even know that they had just yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, I think how much you're scared by something can't be the barometer of quality of horror it just can't um you know because also you know visuals change tastes change uh, kind of our societal norms change things that had been scary you know become much less scary that doesn't mean that the film itself is less of a kind of successful horror like a uh, one really formative example of that for me would be the exorcist which many audiences like no longer find scary kind of religion isn't writ as large in people's lives anymore as it used to be there's lots of factors um to why it's not kind of quite the terrifying shocker it once was but it's still like a highly successful horror film i think and i i think that there's something to be said too about like you kind of this you can't like have your cake and eat it too attitude of complaining that people don't take horror movies seriously but then all you care about is how scary the horror movie is when it's like well then you you have to have those artsy horror films that maybe Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily scary like i don't think that the wicker man has ever been a movie that quote unquote scared me but i think it's a beautiful and artfully done horror movie yeah absolutely so where can people go to pick up a copy of the book um i think it's uh, available wherever good comic books are sold. Um, it's uh, it's on Amazon. Um, you can get it directly from our publisher at Humanoids. Um, but uh, also uh, they have book distribution. So I I mean it's been uh, I've seen it on the website for like Target and places like that. So I think it's going to have quite broad distribution. I'm very happy to say. Um, yeah. That's super super exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> well thank you so much helen i look forward to having more conversations in the future hopefully this book can get you hitting some conventions in the states and uh we can hang out in person one of these days well that would be awesome (laughs) all right thanks very much 91 Donkey Lane is a magical apartment complex that contains immense power but lacks intelligent inhabitants. 
What is happening? I'm getting texts. Why are we getting a lot of texts? People found out what we did. Oh, dividing Mike Myers into an infinite amount of tiny Mike Myers. Listen to 91 Donkey Lane for free on Spotify or your favorite podcasting app. More at 91donkeylane.com. See you there, you donkeys. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 